We do have notes in the back. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, you will need a Bible tonight. Job chapter 32 is where we're going to pick up and we're going to work all the way to Job 37. How many of you thought spring had come officially? It's fake spring. Fake spring is not real spring. I enjoyed it. We had a couple of days. Clayton had baseball practice outside, shorts and t-shirt, and my head got a little pink one of those days. So I enjoyed the sunshine while it lasted. Uh, it was warm when I prepared this sermon last week, and I think I had summer on my mind uh, because something in this passage as I was preparing made me think about amusement parks. Uh, how many of you like to go to amusement parks? You enjoy amusement parks. Two for Jerry Reno. Two hands up. How many of you would rather listen to fingernails on the chalkboard than spend a day at an amusement park? There you go. About 50-50. Uh, because I know you care about uh, things like this, here are my top five amusement parks uh, in the entire world, at least that I've been to. Number one, Wonderland in Amarillo, Texas. It's my absolute favorite amusement park. When I was looking for pictures of Wonderland to put up on the screen, I could smell the pictures. I've been to Wonderland so many times, I looked at the pictures and I thought, I know what it smells like right there. It's a wonderful little park, uh, which is why it's called Wonderland, Amarillo. Uh, number two, this would be, I guess, my serious number one, if you want to put it that way, Silver Dollar City in Branson. Super nice, super clean. Lines weren't too long when we went. We really enjoyed it. Number three, I would be curious to know if any of you have ever been to Holiday World. It is located in Santa Claus, Indiana. One on the back row back there, our old Kentucky resident, has been to uh, Holiday World. We talked about that last week. Holiday World, Splash and Safari in Santa Claus, Indiana. Uh, the theme of the park is holidays. So there's a Christmas section and on and on and on you get the idea. Uh, number four, wherever we're at, Schlitterbahn, like Schlitterbahn, big water park, lots to do. Uh, your feet feel like they're going to fall off after you walk around all day long at Schlitterbahn and it's hot. Number five, Six Flags in Dallas or Arlington or whatever you want to call it. I've been to Six Flags in Louisville, it's not as good. I've been to Six Flags in San Antonio, it's not as good. Uh, I'm a Six Flags Dallas guy. And then if you are curious... I think I've left off at number five here. Way down the list at about number 72, I would put Disney World. All the way down, way, way down. Didn't like it, not interested, don't want to go back. Um, there you go. There's my Disney ranking. This is why I was thinking about amusement parks. How many of you remember in the old days, before cell phones, when you went to an amusement park, you had to find the big sort of map on the board, right? And you would find the map, and when you find the map, what are you looking for on the map? You are here. Where am I on this thing? And then you're looking on the map, and you're saying, where's the water slide? Where's the funnel cakes? Where's the whatever? How do I get over there to that spot? You need to know where you're at so that you can get where you want to end up. Okay? You don't have to use the big boards anymore, you just use your cell phone. You pull your phone out and the park usually has some kind of app and you pull it up and some parks you can get online through your phone, some parks you can track yourself sort of real-time GPS. Uh, I think when we were at Silver Dollar City not that long ago, you could like put directions in, like tell me which way to go and it would say go this way, turn this way, and it would sort of guide you to your destination. Look, when you study the Bible, it's really good to know where am I at. Not just to drop in and sort of look around and try to feel your way out, but to know if I'm at Six Flags, am I in Spain right now? Or am I in France? Or am I in Gotham? Or whatever little part of the park you're in, where am I? And how do I get to where I need to go? That's an important tool for you to be able to have as you study the Bible broadly, where are we at in the Bible, but it's also an important tool within a particular book. And Job is a really, really tricky book to wade your way through if you're just going to drop in and not have any sense of where you're at. So just one more time, I gave you this last week, but I want to remind you of the overall structure of the book of Job. 
You can take the whole book and you can break it down into three parts. There's an introduction and then there's a lot of talking. We'll just call that speeches. And then there's a conclusion at the end. Those are the three big pieces to the book of Job. Now you can take those speeches and you can break them down into three sections. And the first speech is Yahweh and Satan talking. And they're talking about Job and they're talking about various plans and limits to those plans and whatnot. Then there's a large section in the middle where Job and his friends talk. And then at the end of the book, Yahweh will come back not to talk to Satan, but to speak to Job. That's the third speech in the book. Now you can take that middle section of Job and his friends and you can break that part of the book into three pieces. And the first piece is Job speaking just himself. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. Is it a lament? Is it a complaint? He's not really talking to his friends. He's not really addressing anything to God. He's just kind of venting and complaining and whining out into the air. Then in the middle, you have Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And you remember I told you last week you can break that down into three sections because there's three rounds where each of those friends has something to say, and then Job responds, and it goes around once, then twice, then three times, and you are here, okay? Big red circle. You are here with a young man named Elihu, okay? That's where we're at tonight, and if you're looking at this sort of schematic map of the book of Job, you can look up from where you are, and you can say, next week, we're going to have to talk about Yahweh and Job, in fact, we're going to spend two weeks on what Yahweh had to say to Job. And then we'll spend one week at the very end on the conclusion to the book of Job itself. So you have some sense of where we are and where we're headed. Let's talk about the characters in this particular section. Job 32 to 37. This section is dominated by Elihu the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. Elihu had been silently listening to the debate that had been going on. So Elihu is the main character. Up to this point, he's been silently listening to all the conversation between Job and his three friends. Presumably, he's listened to Job's complaint, and then he's listened to Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and all the responses, and now... He's ready to speak. So if your Bible's open, look with me at Job 32, verse 1. It says, So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. This is not a trick question. How is Elihu feeling right now? Okay. Repetition. The author's trying to tell you something. This young man is angry. Okay. I'm just going to be honest with you at several points in the lesson tonight. I think I could walk down the shelf and I could divide the commentaries in two, and half would say this is righteous indignation. And the other half would say, this is a bit of a temper tantrum. And maybe some would even say, at some points it's righteous indignation and it's justified, and at some points he crosses the line. And you're just going to kind of have to sort that out. But what we know is that he's angry. He's angry, number one, with who? Job. And why is he angry with Job? What does the text say? The text says he burned with anger towards Job, because Job had justified Job rather than justifying God. Okay? Elihu's been listening, and his takeaway is, you are more concerned with you being right and you being proven right than God 
being declared to be right. And he's angry about that. He's also angry with Job's friends. And why is he angry with Job's friends? The text says in verse 3 that they had found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the wrong. Okay? Again, I think we could take the commentators and divide them right down the middle. Some of them think that what the text is telling you here is that Elihu is angry that the friends have not been able to ferret out the secret sin that Job had committed. They declared him wrong, but they hadn't been able to prove him wrong, and they've just gone back and forth. I don't think that's what the text is saying. I think what the text is saying to you is Elihu is angry with Job's friends because they are stuck on this one drumbeat over and over and over. Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. You must have done something wrong. They just keep saying it over and over and over again. And they don't convince Job of anything. And Elihu's tired of listening to it. And you'll see as we work through chapter 32 to 37, he takes a different tactic. He doesn't approach the issue exactly like the friends have approached it. So he's angry. He's angry with Job. And he is angry with the friends. Uh, he waited to speak. The other men were older than him. He is at least polite up to this point. And he said, I'm going to let them say their piece and go round and round. He's let them go twice and then a third time. And now he's ready to speak up. Uh, one quick note on this issue of Job. Look at verse 1. Being righteous in his own eyes. And verse 2, justifying himself rather than God. Just hold your spot right there. Flip over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Verse 5. The book of Proverbs says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Look at verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do not be wise in your own eyes. person who is wise in their own eyes, according to the book of Proverbs, is actually a fool. And the text is telling you back in Job chapter 32 that Job was righteous in his own eyes and he had set out to justify himself rather than to justify God. So Elihu's the main character. We're going to hear a lot from him. Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar do not contribute a single word to this section of Job. They don't say anything. Presumably they're there and they're listening. Uh, but it's really interesting that they don't respond in any way, shape, or form. Some commentators, because they don't respond, and the other men responded. They said something, Job, back, forth, back, forth. There's no back and forth here. Some commentators speculate that maybe Elihu didn't say all of this out loud. Maybe Elihu wrote the book and he put his own two cents in at this point before he gets to the conclusion where Yahweh shows up and has something to say. I don't know that I really buy that, but it is interesting that nobody says anything back to Elihu in his response. I'll let you chase this out in chapter 34 on your own. I just want you to understand that Elihu, he's angry with Job, and he's angry with Job's friends. And some of the time, when he's talking, Elihu uses the plural you which in West Texas is y'all. So sometimes he's talking to like the friends or the whole group. And sometimes, later in the very same chapter, he uses the singular you. And the idea is that he's speaking directly to Job. And it's kind of tricky to trace that out and to pay attention because in English we just say at least formally you and you, and that can be y'all or you the individual. So you just need to be aware of that. He's talking to all of them at different times. Here's what I think is the oddest part of this section of the book. Oddly, Yahweh never acknowledges Elihu's speech. 
So my point here is that when you get to the end of the book in Job 38, for example, which we'll look at next week, Yahweh shows up and he starts talking to Job and Yahweh is clearly aware that Job has been running his mouth and he's had a lot to say. So Yahweh acknowledges that Job has been flapping his gums. And then when you come to the very end, when you come to Job chapter 42, Yahweh will say to Job, hey Job, your buddies, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have been real yappy. And you're going to need to pray for them because they have not spoken what was right about me. And it's interesting, he says at the end in chapter 42, they haven't spoken what was right about me like you, Job, has. And you say, wait a minute, I thought the preacher said last week that Job was really mouthy and off the lines. He was, but he comes to the end of the book and he repents. And it's after Job repents and gets right before the Lord that the Lord says, you've spoken what's right, you've repented, and now I need you to pray for your buddies because they have not spoken what is right either. So My point in all this is God never shows up and says, oh, by the way, I really like Elihu. Nor does he show up and say, Elihu is like the fourth stooge. He doesn't say anything. The friends don't respond. Job doesn't respond. Yahweh never responds. I think you can see the balance of it from just a literary perspective. And you can trace this out and figure it out how you want to figure it out. But just from a literary perspective, if you look at this last section of the book of Job, uh, Job and his friends. First, it's just Job talking. It's just Job. And then there's the dialogue in the middle. And then the balance to that is it's just Elihu at the end. There's no conversation there. And so you can maybe figure out what you think's going on. It's the oddest part of the book, and there are all sorts of theories about why no one responds, including Yahweh. Now, last week, we tried to cover like 30-some chapters. It was ridiculous, right? And I told you, we can't look at all of this. There's too much. I told you last week, what I want to do is bait your hook, send you to the fishing hole, give you the tools you need to figure out how to dig into the text and make sense of it yourself. It's a challenging passage, this middle of the book. Tonight, we're only dealing with a handful of chapters. It's still too much to take verse by verse, but tonight, I want us to do more fishing, okay? Rather than just say, here's the idea, you go sort it out. We're going to dig through the text a lot more than we did last week. So you'll need your Bible as you work through the notes here. Let's talk about Elihu's speech. I've broken it down into nine parts. Okay, This is my attempt to summarize what Elihu has to say under nine big headings. Number one, in Job 32, Elihu informed Job and his friends that he had something to say. Okay? He really doesn't say anything. He's basically saying, I got something to say. And he's angry. You remember he's angry. At one point in chapter 32, he says, I am like a, a wineskin that's about to explode. I'm so puffed up, filled up. I just got a lot to say. You guys better buckle up. I'm about to say it. Now look, as Americans... We don't do the kind of thing that Job's doing in chapter 32. We don't show up and say, hey, I have something to say. I have something to say. I have something to say. I have something. We just say it. That's what it, cut to the chase. What is it? Get to the point. But if you go to Eastern cultures or if you go to Kenya with Chris, you'll find that a lot of people around the world, before they tell you something, they like to tell you that they have something to tell you. And there's a lot of formality, and there's a lot of carrying on, and these long introductions. And sometimes you go to church in Kenya, and we love these brothers, but sometimes you go to church in Kenya, someone gets up and talks for 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, and then they kind of look around and say, okay, now we can begin. And you think, I thought we were almost done. You just said a lot, but in their minds, they really didn't say anything yet. And I'm just telling you a lie who does that. He starts off and he says, hey, I got something to say. He gets everybody's attention, okay? Second point or second part of his speech. Elihu argued for the transcendent greatness of God. 
the transcendent greatness of God. All right, we're moving on to Job 33. Look at what he says in verse 6 and verse 7. 33.6, Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be too heavy upon you. He's saying to Job, I'm a human just like you. Okay, you understand this pinched off piece of clay goes back to the creation story where God scoops down to the dirt and he forms man from the dirt of the ground and he breathes into him and he becomes a living being. And Job is saying, look, you and me, we're the same. I'm a human being. We're in the same category, just a pinched off piece of the clay that God has breathed into and given life to. Now look what he says down in verse 8. He says, Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, notice the single quotation mark. This is Elihu quoting Job. Most of the time when he quotes Job, it's not exact word for word, but it's Elihu's paraphrase of what Job has said, which is exactly how you quote people all the time. You say, you won't believe what this person said to me. They said, da, 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 da. Is it word for word? No, but it conveys the sense. That's what Elihu's doing. So he says, you said, Job, quote, I'm pure, without transgression, I'm clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he, who's the he, if Job is speaking? He's talking about God. He finds occasions against me, and he counts me as his enemy, and he puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. End single quote. So Job has said, I haven't done anything wrong, and God is pushing me around for no reason. He's bullying me. And he's coming after me. That's the gist of what Job has said. Elihu picks back up in verse 12. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you. Here's part of his answer. Are you ready for this? God is greater than man. And as Elihu has listened to Job talk, he's convinced that Job has forgotten that. Job, you and me, pinched off pieces of the clay, Bubba. That's it. God is greater than that. And you have set out to justify yourself. And you have set out to say that God is just bullying you for no reason. And you're not right in that. And Job, your attitude underneath all of it is that you have forgotten that God is greater than man. When we speak about God's transcendence, we're speaking about His holiness. He's above us. He's different than us. He's in a category all by himself. Okay, Just to come up with an example of this, I had a pretty good feeling what Google would tell me. I Googled the phrase transcendent talent. Transcendent talent. You know who showed up? I was right. I got Google right on this one. Caitlin Clark, basketball player for the University of Iowa. Scores about 5,000 points a game. Nobody can stop her. Unbelievable. She has the record for the all-time scoring. She's just, people line up by the thousands to see this girl play. She's absolutely amazing basketball player. People describe her as a transcendent talent. And what they mean is, here's all the normal college basketball players, and she's another level above them. Okay, They're just the pinched off piece of clay. And she's like superwoman, and you can't stop her. That's how they use the phrase. Now, the gulf between Boys and Girls Club Odessa basketball and Caitlin Clark is nothing compared to the gulf between a pinched-off piece of clay and the transcendent creator. And Elihu wants to remind Job Right at the get-go, you need to remember who you are, and you need to remember who God is. Okay, This is such a simple verse in verse 12. God 
is greater than man. It's so simple. Every third grader down the hall could get that right. True or false? God is greater than man. True. Yes. And Job forgot it. And sometimes we forget it. Transcendent greatness of God. Job has decided, may remember we looked at a verse last week. He said, I am not going to restrain my mouth. I'm going to say whatever I want to say to God. And if God would just come down here and give me an audience, I could set him straight. And Elihu says, hold the train. God is greater than man. And you need to get square on that. So, that's the first part of his speech. Part number three. In Job 33, 13 to 33, Elihu reminded Job that God speaks to his people. He speaks to his people. So one of the things that Job has said over and over and over again is, God won't give me an answer. God won't give me an answer. And he keeps saying, I just need God to come down here and give me an answer. I just need God to come down. We could hash this out face to face. We figure it out. I'm right. He knows I'm right. I don't know why he's running things this way. But he won't give me an answer. And Job is frustrated by that. So look what Elihu says in verse 14. Well, let's back up. Look at verse 13. Elihu speaking. Why do you contend against him? That's against God. Why do you say he will answer none of man's words? Quotes. That's what Job was saying. He won't answer me. He won't give me an answer. God won't talk to me. Why do you say this? Elihu says. Verse 14, God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. And in verse 15, you see the first way that God speaks. God speaks through dreams. That's what Elihu says. God speaks to his people through dreams. And if you keep reading, in verse 15, 16, all the way down through like verse 18 or so. You see there's a little gap between 18 and 19. Elihu says when God speaks to his people through dreams, he speaks to warn them about things in their life that they need to stay away from or beware of or sin they need to get out of. He's, he's trying to keep them from danger and from death and from sin. He speaks to his people through dreams. Now, we're not going to chase this out tonight, but let's just make the point that in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to his people in many different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to his people through his son. And the son is promised to send the spirit. And the spirit, you know, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, inspires the scriptures. There's a difference between how God spoke to his people in the past, many different ways, Hebrews 1, and how he is speaking to his people now through his son who sends the spirit and speaks in the scriptures. So if you want to hear God speak to you, don't go home and take a Benadryl and say, I'm going to take a really good you know, sleep tonight and have a vision of something in the middle of the night and that's God speaking to me. That's not how God speaks to his people today. It's not. If you want to hear God speak to you, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak out loud to you, read your Bible out loud. Open the Bible and read what the Holy Spirit has said in inspiring the Scriptures. So, number one, God speaks through dreams. Number two, this is one of the great things that Elihu adds to the mix. God speaks through suffering. So he says in verse 14, God speaks in one way and two, though man doesn't perceive it. Verse 15, he speaks in a dream. Verse 19 he says, man is rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. God speaks to you in your arthritis. He's telling you something. So the question is, are you listening? He speaks to his people through suffering. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we've got so much ground to cover, but we read Romans 5 and we read James 1 and Paul and James agree that you should rejoice in your sufferings. Why should you rejoice in your sufferings? Because in your sufferings, God is working to produce character. And He's working to produce perseverance and steadfastness and maturity and perfection. 
all the suffering that you experience in life, God is at work in it to sanctify you and to change you. Now, what did Job's friends say? Oh, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. You must have cheated on your taxes. And God saw it. You got away with the IRS, but God knows it, and he's punishing you. That's what it's all about. And Elihu comes along, and he says, well, what if it's not about God punishing you? What if it's about God trying to teach you something and speak to you and, and change you and to keep you from sin, not that you've already committed, but sin in the future? To build character in you and integrity and steadfastness and perseverance and hope. And all of those things we read in Romans 5 and James 1. Okay, This is what he says here about God speaking to his people through suffering. This is part of the idea that allowed a man named Horatio Spafford to write a hymn that you may have sung over the last couple weeks called It Is Well With My Soul. Okay? Eliphaz would never write that song. Bildad wouldn't write it. Zophar wouldn't write it. Job, up to this point, wouldn't write it. But that's part of the idea that Elihu is communicating. What if God is actually at work in this some way? And even in suffering and tragedy, and we don't want to make light of any of Job's suffering or his tragedy because it's hellish. But what if God is even at work in that to speak to you and to change you and to make you into a new kind of person? So God speaks to his people, Elihu says. Don't say, he doesn't speak to me, Job. He does speak to his people. Number four, Elihu defended God's character and he rebuked Job's transgression. We're moving to Job chapter 34 here. He defends God's character, and he rebukes Job's transgression. Look at Job 34, verse 5. Job has said, quote, he's quoting Job again, I'm in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I'm counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression, end quote. What man is like Job, he says, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? That reminds me a lot of Psalm 1 that we talked about Sunday. The person who walks and stands and sits with the scoffers and the sinners and the wicked. He's saying, Job, you sound just like these people. Verse 9, he has said, Job has said, quote, It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. So Job has sort of gone off the rails in all of these things. Job has unwittingly bought into the retribution theology idea. Right? He's not challenged his friends on that. He just thinks God is the one who's not holding up his end of the bargain. So he's saying, look, you can trust in God, but it's not going to pay off for you. God can do whatever he wants. This isn't right. I haven't done anything wrong. So how does Elihu go about undoing Job's buy-in to the retribution theology and this sort of functional, you put good in, God will give you good out immediately? The way he goes about it is he talks about God's character. He tries to reshape what Job thinks about God. So here's a few of the things that Elihu mentions. He tells Job that God is holy. He tells Job that God is just. He reminds Job that God is the sustainer. And he reminds Job that God is omniscient. And by bringing up these particular issues, you understand Elihu has diagnosed in Job that he has forgotten these things. Or he's not applying these things. He says God's holy. Look what he says in verse 10. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. Job, you've charged God with injustice. Job, think about that. Far be it from God that he would do wickedness. Look at verse 12. God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. He's just, always just. Look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. If God should set it in his heart to do it, 
and to gather himself his spirit in his breath, all flesh would perish together. Job, if God pulled life out of your body right now, you would die. And the fact that you haven't died is because God is sustaining you. He's kept you alive. Verse 21 and 22. His eyes are on the ways of a man. He sees all his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. Job, God knows everything. He sees all of it. None of it's hidden from him. Job's forgotten all of these things. There's a quote I've shared with you before. It's from a man named A.W. Tozer. And he says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The way that you undo somebody's bad, messed up, twisted theology is you get them square on who they are and who God is. You are a pinched off piece of clay, nothing more. You're a sinner. You've said that you are without sin and that's not right. He's about to rebuke Job for his sin. And you set them square on who God is. He's holy and he's just and he sustains your life and he knows everything. Job, you've forgotten these things. What you think about God, when you think about God, will change the way that you experience prosperity in your life. And it will change the way that you experience suffering in your life. And Job is off. So Elihu defends God's character and he rebukes Job's transgression. Look what he says in verse 35, 36, 37, the end of chapter 34. It says, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. He adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Job, you've said you're innocent. You know that you are a sinner. And now you're adding rebellion to your sin because you're yapping against God. And you're multiplying your words against God. So he defends God's character and he rebukes Job's transgression. Number five, Elihu argues for the immutability of God. Immutability, that's a big word, it's an important word. When we talk about God's immutability, what we're saying is that God does not change. He does not change. The weather in Odessa changes. A lot. When the weather changes, you might change. You might get achy knees. You might get a runny nose. You might feel a sinus pressure. Weather changes. We change. God doesn't change. This is a consequence of God being perfect. Okay? You just trace this through. You think about what does it mean? What would it mean for someone, God, To be a perfect being, it means you can't get better. That's what perfect means. You're perfect. There's no areas of improvement for God. You sit down at the end of the year with your boss and you say, let's have a review of the year. Here's where you can improve. You sit down with God at the end of the year, you say, well, it was perfect. He can't improve and he can't get worse because he's perfect. That's tied up in the idea of perfection. And if he can't improve or he can't get worse, if he knows everything, he can't learn like you learn because you don't know everything and I don't know everything. And we speak about his immutability. He can't change. So I just want you to see how Elihu phrases this. Look at Job chapter 35. Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it's my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? I'll answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see. Behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? Job, if you do sin, does it change anything inherent to God? He's still God. And look what he says next. If you're righteous, what do you give to him? What does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. 
this probably ought to change the way you think about lots of things. But what Elihu is saying to Job is, if you sin, it doesn't make God any less God. He's still God. And if you're perfectly righteous, it doesn't change anything about God. He's still God. So if you wake up Sunday and you just decide to be lazy and you don't come to church, guess what? God's still God. No less God than if you came. And if you show up and you fill in every blank on the sermon notes and you sing every note and you don't even do the awkward thing where you sing too early or off key or anything like that and people around you nervously shuffle, but you just you have like a perfect Sunday, God's still God. He's no more God than if you stayed home and slept in. He's immutable. If you sin, what have you done against him? Obviously, God's angry with sin, but it doesn't change him inherently. And if you're a really good person for the day, it doesn't change anything in God because he's still God. He's a perfect being. So the immutability of God is a big thought of God. You can wrestle with it. J.I. Packer, Knowing God, I've quoted this book to you multiple times. Our staff and our elders are reading it right now. He says, this knowledge, uh, this is knowledge which Christians today largely lack, and that is one reason why our faith is so feeble and our worship is so flabby. We're modern people, and modern people, though they cherish great thoughts of themselves, have as a rule small thoughts of God. That's what Elihu's saying. You have really small thoughts of God right now, and you need to have bigger thoughts of God. Smaller thoughts about you, bigger thoughts about God. Martin Luther, one of his great Quotes, he has a lot of them. Uh, in the preface of The Bondage of the Will, he's writing to Erasmus and he says, Your thoughts about God are all too human. That's what Elihu's saying. What number are we on? Number six. In Job 35, 9 to 16, Elihu reminded Job that some prayers are empty. This may be a new idea for some of you. We're going to read it, and I'm going to point you to another passage that says almost the same thing. Look at Job 35, verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God, my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? Okay? Think about what he said in 9, 10, 11. People cry out because of oppression. And there's powerful people hurting them. But they don't cry out to their maker. They don't look to God as God. And they don't worship Him as God. Verse 12. There they cry out, but He does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you don't seem as the case before him and you're waiting for him. And now, because his anger doesn't punish and he doesn't take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk and he multiplies his words without knowledge. This is what Elihu's saying. Job, there's people who find themselves in tight spots and they call out because they don't want to be in that tight spot. But they're really not calling out to God as God. They really don't care anything about God. They just want to get out of the tight spot. He says that's an empty prayer. And God doesn't hear it. You trace out this same idea in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1 says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. Saying, listen to me, listen to me, don't run into danger. Wisdom is calling out to people. And do people listen to wisdom? No. They ignore wisdom and they run into sin and folly and they get themselves in trouble. And then what do they do? They say, get me out of this mess. Bail me out. Fix this problem that I've created for myself. Proverbs 1, do you know what wisdom does? laughs at them. 
wisdom says that's not how it works. You don't get to run away from wisdom, face the consequences, and then get just enough wisdom to fix your problem. It's not how it works. And that's what Elihu's saying here to Job. Job, you've been doing a lot of calling out to God, but you're really not calling out to Him as God. You're just calling out to Him to fix the problem that you find yourself in. You can wrestle with this. Some prayers are empty. Number seven, Job 36. Elihu acknowledged the truthfulness of proverbial wisdom. So we're short on time. We're tight on time. I just want to make two comments here. Look what Elihu says in verse 4. Job 36, 4. He says, For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. That's probably a bit much, don't you think? For the young man to say, listen up, old timers. Someone who has perfect knowledge is here with you. And every commentator agrees he's talking about himself. He's not saying, God's here with us. He's saying, lucky for you, I'm here. Because I have perfect knowledge. So this is a place where you say, okay, Elihu, dial it back just a little bit. That anger has maybe crossed the line. What he says in Job 36, I'm going to be honest with you. It's almost word for word what Job's friends have said earlier in the book. If you sin, God's going to get you. If you're a good person, God's going to take care of you. Leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms, safe and secure from all alarms. We just sang that, didn't we? You just lean on God's arms, keep you safe from everything. That how it works? So some commentators look at this and they say, this is Elihu going off the rails and he just kind of wanders around in the wilderness for a while before he gets it straight and comes back in. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's stepping back and he's saying to Job, don't give up on proverbial wisdom. It may not be that you've sinned in this particular instance and God's punishing you, but these things are still generally true. Don't rip Proverbs out of your Bible. When Proverbs 3 says, Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your wealth, and if you do it, your barns will be overflowing. And you put your tithe in the box, and money's still tight the next month. Don't say, Well, that was a waste. That didn't work. Don't rip Proverbs 3 out of your Bible. You understand it's not a promise, it's not magic, but it's generally true for God's people. When Proverbs says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it, and you train up a child and they depart, don't say, well, I guess that's wrong. I guess it doesn't matter how you train up a child, or if you train them up at all. You still need that wisdom. It's not a promise. It's not magic. But it is true. It's proverbially true, and it's wisdom from God, and you need to hold on to it. So all through chapter 36, Elihu sounds a lot like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And I don't think he's going down those same roads. I think he's just saying to Job, hey, these things are true, and you do need to remember them. He's nuanced his ideas in other ways, but he's not giving up on proverbial wisdom. Okay, You can sort that out. Number eight. Job 36 and 37, Elihu called Job to worship the Creator. Job, you need to worship. And Job did that earlier in the book, didn't he? Naked I came, naked I'll go, blessed be the name of the Lord. And Elihu wants him to get back to some of that stuff. Job chapter 36 verse 24, remember to extol his work of which men have sung. I don't know how old this book is, but for thousands of years, God's people have been singing people. That's what God's people do. They sing. All people on the earth sing. God's people sing. And when they sing, they extol His work. And when you come into this room on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning for a worship service, and you leave, the measure of what happened in the room is... Did the songs appeal to you? Did you know 
that middle hymn that we sang earlier, or did you struggle to sing it because you didn't know that one? We've never done it on a Wednesday night. Or did the band do the song just right? Did they sing it too high? None of that stuff matters. It's all immaterial. Did the people of God come together to extol God and to praise Him? That's the measure of a good worship service. Not how did you feel about it. Not was your favorite singer up there. Not did they do the, your favorite song or did they do the song you don't like. The measure is, did we extol God in that service? Job, worship the Creator. Number nine. Elihu insisted that we do not and cannot understand all of God's ways. Is another part of the nuance that he adds that I think is helpful. Look what he says in Job 36, verse 26. He says, Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. That's the verse you give your kids when they say, How old is God? It's an unsearchable number. That's the Bible answer. There's things about God we can't understand. That doesn't mean we can't know God because God has revealed himself. Remember earlier, God speaks to his people. He speaks through creation. He has spoken in many ways in the past through dreams and visions and prophets. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son and his son has sent his spirit to inspire the scriptures. God has not left himself without witness. He's not left us to guess about who he is or what he's like. But even as God has spoken to us, we are just pinched off pieces of clay. And there's things about the Creator that we'll never be able to understand. Look what he says in 37 verse 5. God thunders wondrously with His voice. He does great things that we can't comprehend. Job, maybe all this stuff in your life is just beyond our pay grade. No one has said that up to this point. They've just said, it's this or it's this. And Elihu says, maybe we just, maybe this is beyond us. Verse 13, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. God does things for all sorts of reasons and we don't always know. Look what he says in verse 23 and verse 24. The Almighty, we can't find him. He can reveal himself to us, but we can't find him. He's great in power, justice, abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And that's a pretty good end for what Elihu has been trying to say to Job, who was wise in his own eyes and tried to justify himself. All right, what do we learn? Two thoughts. We'll be quick. We ought to care more about God's glory than ourselves or our rightness or our reputation or even our comfort. One of the things that a lot of commentators acknowledge, even though they disagree a lot about Elihu, they acknowledge that Elihu is a wonderful setup for what's about to happen in chapter 38. He's moving things in a better direction for when God shows up and speaks in Job chapter 38. Okay, Up to this point, there's been a lot of arguing, not a lot of progress. Job's had some things to say. His friends have had some things to say. His wife has had some things to say. People have accused other people of doing different things, of being a certain way. People have said, no, I'm right. No, I know more than you. Oh, you think you know it all, and back and forth. And there has been very little serious attention given to the glory of God. And that's one of the things Elihu corrects when he shows up. Is he kind of turns the train, he kind of brings it back towards the track and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's talk about God's transcendent greatness. Let's talk about God's holiness and His just nature. And let's talk about how He sustains you. And Let's talk about how you ought to worship Him because He's the Creator. Let's talk about His immutability. Let's refocus our eyes more on God and less on ourselves in this argument that's gone back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Chapter 38 is coming, 
there will be no lack of focus on God's glory in 38. And Elihu has moved things in that direction. Number two, what do we learn? Wisdom does not automatically accumulate through experience or age. Wisdom comes from God. I already told you that I think Job 36.4 is a bit much when he says, I am perfect in knowledge. Okay, too much. Dial that back. But this is, this is better wisdom than the friends have shown up to this point. It's noticeably different. It's noticeably better. It's more nuanced. It's not so black and white like you must ascend. No, God must be in the wrong. And we just go round and round arguing about those two things. Elihu introduces some ideas that haven't been brought up uh, up to this point. And I just would draw your attention all the way back to Job chapter 32, right at the beginning of his speech. Verse 9, Job 32, 9, Elihu says, It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Just because you've gone through the school of hard knocks doesn't mean you've graduated. Just because you're old doesn't mean you have it all figured out. Any more than just because you're young you have it all figured out. Or because you scored a certain thing on your SATs you have it all figured out. Wisdom comes from the Lord. And we read that in James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach. But ask, believing that he can give it to you. You know, the book of Proverbs says the same thing in Proverbs chapter 2. If you lack wisdom, you should seek for it like treasure. You should ask God to give it to you. And God will give it because he's the one who gives wisdom. Age doesn't give it automatically. Experience doesn't give it automatically. God's the one who gives wisdom to his people. Can I tell you what biblical wisdom is like? When you have it, it's like a big red dot on a map showing you this is where you're at, right here. This is, this is the park, this is the world, and this is where you're at. This is how you get to where you want to go. There's a God, and He made everything. He's a creator. He's holy. He always does what's right. But you're a sinner. And human sin brings suffering into the world. That's biblical wisdom. Why is the world the way it is? Well, it's because humans have sinned. And they brought suffering and sin and death into this world. And God, out of His great love for sinners, sent His Son into this world to suffer for sinners. So that our sins might be forgiven. And God has not only sent Jesus to die for us while we were sinners, Romans 5, but he's also given us his Holy Spirit who pours out his love into our hearts. So that we know, even in suffering and tribulation, that God cares for his people. So we rejoice in our tribulations. Not because we like them. Not because we think God is always punishing us. But because we understand God's speaking to us in these moments. And he's working on us and he's conforming us to the image of his son. And biblical wisdom says to you, look, this life is not about read your Bible every day. Money will show up in your mailbox. Help the little old lady across the street and everything's going to come out good at the doctor's appointment later this week. That's not how it works. But the Bible does say if you'll repent of your sin. And you'll put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll call out to God for true wisdom. He'll honor that prayer. He'll give wisdom to his people and he'll give life to his people. Life. Eternal life. Not just good things tomorrow, but eternal, everlasting life. That's what biblical wisdom does. It says this is where you're at. Here's where you want to go and here's how you can get there. Father, tonight we're grateful. Uh, grateful for the book of Job. Grateful for wisdom. 
Grateful that as we find ourselves in this world, you've not left us to guess and to wonder about where we are or where we're headed or how we can get to where we want to go. Uh, but you have spoken to us plainly. You've spoken to your people for thousands of years in many different ways. And in these last days, you've spoken to us through your Son who sent the Spirit. Father, we pray that we would be people who are focused first and foremost on you and your glory and not ourselves, our own circumstance, our own comfort, our own agenda, our own rightness, our own reputation. Father, and we pray that you would give us wisdom. Father, we pray that we would be people that when we hear the good news of Jesus Christ, we don't think that it's folly and we don't think that it's weak, but we hear it as the wisdom and the power of God for salvation. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.